Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in today for the final episode covering implications of the Russian government's invasion of Ukraine. Today, we'll dig deeper into some accounting impacts, including revenue recognition and receivables, financial asset impairment, and derivative accounting. You want to think about this not only for customers that are physically located in Ukraine or or Russia, but customers that may not be located there, but are nonetheless impacted by these events. You need to think about credit risk broadly, um, not just the financial health of the obligor, but also other things that may impact uh, their ability to pay. Those are my guests, Angela Ferguson and Brett Dooley, partners in our national office who'll take us through what you need to know, even for companies without operations located in the war zone. So, Brett, Angela, as we've talked about on our past podcasts this week, as well as on our webcast earlier in March, and as our publication indicates, there are a lot of different issues that have stemmed from the conflict arising from the Russian government invasion of Ukraine. And in particular, I know there's some various areas that you are both involved in, including revenue receivables, some contract issues, and otherwise that we'll hit on today. So jump around a little bit to hit a few different things, uh, but definitely I think a lot for people to consider as they think about their month end or their quarter end reporting, and even as we look ahead later into 2022. So Angela, I'm going to talk to you about your favorite topic, and I feel like you have become quite the regular guest on the podcast talking about this, uh, but what types of questions are you getting from companies related to revenue recognition? So an issue that we're hearing really specific to the first quarter as companies are closing their books or getting ready to close their books for the first quarter is about revenue um, transactions that took place earlier in the quarter. Um, and the, the question is, you know, if the company performed and recognized revenue, but now that we're here at the end of March, there's some uncertainty about the ability to collect on those receivables. Does that mean I need to reverse the revenue? And the reason people are asking is because generally, we don't like to recognize revenue and reserve the receivable in the same reporting period. And that's because typically there's not going to be like a, the ability to pinpoint something that happened that caused that, that analysis to change so rapidly. So the classic example is when you have a customer that goes bankrupt, like typically that doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. There are a series of events that lead up to the actual bankruptcy. So we don't change our collectability assessment just only once the customer goes bankrupt, right? right? You should be thinking about that beforehand. However, in um, this particular situation, it may be very reasonable to conclude that earlier in the quarter, when the company was um, performing and recognizing revenue, that they believed that it was probable that they would be able to collect from those customers. And so that revenue was valid and appropriate to recognize at the time. So in this case, 
you, it may be appropriate to conclude there was a change in, fa in facts and circumstances that caused that assessment to change later in the quarter when you're now looking at uh, collectability of those receivables. So what does that mean? That means that, no, you don't have to reverse that revenue if at the time you recognized it, you believed it was probable that you would collect the consideration unless you were to conclude that um, you were planning to give a price concession for those sales. But otherwise, those sales, the revenue does not get reversed for those sales. So Angela, is it, and I know it's never black and white, but is it almost as black and white as revenue transactions before February 24th would still be revenue? And then once after, are gonna, going to, we're going to talk about in my next question. I hate to give a date like that. I mean, it really <laughs> depends on the facts and circumstances, but it, it may be, that may make sense, right? That prior to the Russian government's invasion of Ukraine, there was one assessment and then facts changed after that event. That that might be a company's conclusion. All right. And I'll say what I know you really wanted to say, which is, that of course, every one of our listeners should be looking at their own facts and circumstances within you know, the guidance in 606. So uh, definitely give that caveat. Angela, you touched on this, but how about then if you've entered into a new contract or you have transactions with customers sort of after this event has happened, how do you think about those? Right. So I kind of alluded to this, but didn't say it directly, but the revenue standard requires that in order to have a contract and therefore in order to recognize revenue, you have to conclude that collection is probable. So if you're entering into new contracts or new transactions with customers, you know, after this change in facts and circumstances, you would need to assess whether collection is probable prior to recognizing revenue. And you want to think about this not only for customers that are physically located in Ukraine or, or Russia, but customers that may not be located there, but are nonetheless impacted by these events, so they would there would be uh, uncertainty around their ability to pay. Uh, and it's important, right? If a customer's or if a company's normal process is to look at certain data points, right? You're often going to look at like historical collections or other historical data to assess collectability. That might not make sense now, or that might not be enough right now to just look at historical collections because you're going to have to consider how have customers been impacted that would you know be different from your historical experience with that customer so then angela maybe a follow-up question is what if you have a contract in process how do you think about that so for an in-process contract i mean you did an assessment of collectability at contract inception but you, you do have to reassess that if there's been a significant change in facts and circumstances. So this is similar to what we were talking about initially, where even though you may have been recognizing revenue previously, once you have a change in significant facts and circumstances, you need to assess whether collection is probable. And if that changes, that it's no longer probable, you would cease to recognize revenue on a go forward basis. Now, again, that doesn't mean you go back and 
and adjust previously recognized revenue unless you were giving some sort of concession related to that revenue. But you would have to assess if there are any receivables outstanding, of course, whether any allowance is needed for those outstanding receivables. So, Brett, let me pull you into the conversation then. How should companies be thinking about receivables you know, directly with companies in Russia and Ukraine, as well as maybe other companies that are just impacted by the events there. Right, right. I think there's a couple of considerations companies should be thinking about. One, and Angela touched on this, um, you know, sometimes we narrowly think about credit risk as the financial health of the obligor. And you may be dealing with an obligor, a company um, that whose operations are healthy, uh, et cetera, and you normally would expect them to be able to pay the receivable, but there may be an inability to pay, for example, due to sanctions um, placed um, and, and an inability to get either cash out of the country or, or pay that pay that invoice. And so you need to think about credit risk broadly, um, not just the financial health of the obligor, but also other things that may impact uh, their ability to pay. I think the second thing to think about is, is what you just said, but think broadly about um, your customer's um, not just in that region, but how they're impacted. And also, it's not just your customers, but your customers' customers. You know, a, a company may be um, done business in, in the, the affected region and uh, may be having trouble collecting its receivables, and that may have spill-on effects. And so I think um, especially in financial institutions with loan portfolios, but also uh, commercial companies with loan receivables need to think broadly about, about um, their customer base and the impacts um, that this is having on their customer base. And you'll need to revise economic outlooks, uh, forecasts, you know, maybe think about sensitivity analysis where there's uncertainties um, and companies that use probability weighting in different scenarios um, because of that uncertainty will we'll, we'll want to take a look at those. And uh, broadly, we do expect to see an increased allowance for credit losses related to receivables and loans given what's going on in the world. Definitely makes sense. I'm just thinking, I can't remember if it was on the webcast or one of our recent podcasts, we made the point that this is definitely not the time to just say, oh, same as last quarter, kind of carrying things forward because there is so much that's different. And again, this is not just if you're directly dealing with, with customers there. Angela, one related question on revenue, though, is I definitely know all of our listeners would have read in the news. We've seen so many companies that have announced that they're pulling out, you know, they're pulling out of operating in Russia. So if you are actually discontinuing relationships with customers, is there anything in particular that you should be thinking about from an accounting standpoint? Yeah, a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, you would certainly need to understand what your termination rights are in these in contracts. If you're if you're walking away or terminating a contract early, what were the rights to to terminate? Were there any things like force majeure clauses or other clauses in the contract that might indicate you know, whether you have to pay any penalties if you were unable to perform or or provide any refunds or record any other kind of liabilities related to walking away from a contract. And of course, that's going to be entirely on a case-by-case basis and going to require your close coordination with legal counsel to, to work through all that. Um, we've also gotten questions about what do you do if you have deferred revenue uh, recorded for a contract and you're now no longer going to um, 
continue to perform on that contract? What do you do with the deferred revenue? And again, that's going to be on a case by case basis, right? Whether you are going to have to you know, perform at some point in the future, or you're going to have to refund some money, but assessing you know, carefully, like when would you be able to say that you have been released from that obligation or extinguish that liability? And another follow-on point there is, you know, once you do conclude that you can release a liability, a contract liability or deferred revenue, um, you'd also want to think about where you would re- where you would record that in the financials. Possibly, it would be appropriate to record that as revenue. But in some cases, if if the company didn't perform but didn't have to return cash, it may in some cases be more appropriate to record that as other income. Uh, but it's really going it's really going to depend. And then one one last reminder is that uh, if you do have to make any additional payments to a customer as part of terminating a contract. You know, you're recording a liability for some other payment you're going to have to make to a customer. Generally, that's going to be a reduction of revenue. So, you know, don't assume you would record that as an expense. All right. Definitely good reminders there. And clearly that reminder about make sure you understand your particular facts and circumstances will be important. One thing, though, you made me think of, and I'll see if either one of you wants to weigh in on this one. What if you have other payables to companies that are operating, you know, a company located maybe in Russia that now you actually can't pay them because they're no longer, their bank is no longer in SWIFT or otherwise it's difficult to get them money. You still have your liability, but how would we think about that? You, you generally don't release a liability from the balance sheet until it's been legally extinguished, uh, right, as, as for your primary obligor. So I don't know that the sanctions we're talking about have legally extinguished um, that, ob- that obligation. And so you probably need to think through that legal construct, though, and, and think about uh, that obligation and, and whether, uh, whether some of that happens where it's legally extinguished. But I wouldn't think that the sanction just in and of itself uh, would extinguish that liability. All right. I think, Brett, that's a great reminder. And actually, earlier this week, I spoke to a couple of PwC's sanction experts. And one of their biggest pieces of, of advice was to make sure you understand the sanctions and the impact on your company, You know, talking to legal counsel and your experts. So clearly, that's a, a good point that you made there, that it's not just things you're receiving from that region, but even things you're paying there. And, you know, I know there's other issues if you have employees, et cetera, in that region. So uh, something to think about. All right. Sticking with you, Brett, then I know we talked about valuation related to trade receivables, but there are also broader valuation issues related to let's focus in here on financial assets. Since I spoke to Jay and Rito yesterday about non-financial assets, what are some of the things you would think about? Yeah, um, we, you know, we're thinking about estimating fair value here. Um, and anytime you're dealing with a situation as we are uh, in the region where there is um, a, a, a seizure of markets um, and market activity, it creates some complications in estimating fair value because you don't see the same flow between willing buyers and willing sellers that, that you normally would. Um, a few of the complexities here that we've seen in, in other um, crises, but um, some of them are um, maybe unique. So we've got 
situations with closed markets. The, some exchanges have been closed. Um, you've got some inability to access markets. So even if a market and our exchange is open, uh, certain companies may not be able to access or participate in that exchange. Um, and then in, in some cases, you just have an absence of willing buyers. Um, um, some, in some cases, there, there are investors that just um, almost at any price aren't interested in taking on investments or, or buying these financial assets. And so in some cases, um, you know, these seem like unique circumstances, but I think the most important thing is to anchor yourself to core principles um, that we have been established under, under our fair value literature, ASC 820, um, and, and rely on those, on those processes and established procedures that you have for looking to active markets, looking to observable transactions, um, and using using uh, your models uh, and estimates where where there aren't active markets. In some cases, marking something down to zero may feel like um, a good intuitive answer. Um, in some cases, that that may not be the right answer. So it's important to evaluate all of the facts that you have and all of the activity that you can you can see in the market uh, when estimating fair value. Um, a couple principles to keep in mind um, where there is an observable trade, there's a fairly high bar to just ignore that price um, where, you, where you see it. Um, sometimes there are distressed transactions, uh, but, but there's a fairly high uh, hurdle to view something as a distressed transaction that that price should be uh, disregarded. Um, and in a number of cases, instruments that previously had an active market where you're just using the price executed in that market uh, for the valuation, that market has gone away or you don't have access to it, those quoted prices may, may become what we call level two or level three inputs for estimating fair value. So it's not that they, they, they may not be able to be used directly, but they're still uh, relevant data points to consider when estimating uh, fair value. The other thing I would mention here um, beyond just the valuation issues is to remember that different types of financial assets actually have different impairment standards and accounting standards for dealing with that. So it's not always just marking down to fair value. You need to understand what your what instrument you're looking at. You know, loans and receivables are going to be treated differently than some AFS securities uh, will be treated differently some for some equity investments. Um, for example, one thing we're seeing uh, with AFS securities is the decrease in fair value due to a foreign exchange rates may not always result in impairment. Uh, you need to consider whether that change in exchange rates uh, creates an other the temporary impairment because the rate isn't expected to recover, um, in which case you would take the impairment. But if you do expect the rate to uh, recover back, um, then those FX changes remain an OCI um, along with um, the other changes value of the of the instrument. Um, and then the other reminder I'd, I'd give people is on equity investments uh, under the measurement alternative. So this is where um, you've elected the measurement alternative. Um, the, the equity investment is measured at cost. You're adjusting it for observable prices or observable um, price changes, um, less impairment. And so you always have to have a process to think about uh, whether impairment exists, whether fair value is below your carrying value. And remember that there's no longer an ability or an assessment of whether th that decline in value is temporary. If there is a decline in value below your carrying value, it's a one-step model. You immediately write it down to fair value. 
All right. That was a very long list of things to remember, Brett. I think my key takeaway from that was that make sure you know what you're evaluating and then go look at the guidance for the right model and follow it. And maybe the other one would be is that don't just automatically assume because you don't like the price, you know, the quoted prices or otherwise that you can just completely disregard them. Is that two fair takeaways there? Good good takeaways. Yep. All right. Perfect. Now, Brett, next topic is one that's kind of near and dear to my heart from my background uh, dealing with commodities, and that's dealing with either hedges or normal purchases, normal sales, when you are either purchasing or selling raw materials. And let's say because of the disruption, you now are going to potentially miss a forecasted transaction or in the case of normal, that maybe you're not going to actually physically receive uh, or deliver the goods. How do you think about that? Yeah. And I think what you what you hit on supply chain disruption, that's the right focus. Again, it's not just in the region, it's wherever um, you're you're either buying or selling and, and you're seeing delays in the in, throughout the supply chain. Um, and as you notice, as you noted, in a number of hedge programs, uh, you're making forecasts of transactions. Um, those may get canceled, they may be delayed. And so you need to think about how your forecast is changing because the accounting treatment is going to differ based on what's happening to your forecast. For example, if your forecasted transaction is merely delayed by a short period of time, you may continue with hedge accounting um, as, as, you've been, as you've been doing. There may be cases where you determine that it's no longer probable that forecasted transaction will occur. It, it might occur, but you can't say that it's probable. Um, but uh, in that case, you would cease hedge accounting um, and, but, um, the amount, the gain or loss on your hedging instrument that's remaining, that's sitting in OCI would remain in OCI. Um, you just can't apply, uh, hedge accounting to further changes in fair value. Um, it's only if you determine that that forecasted transaction is, uh, now probable of not occurring, uh, that you would flush that gain or loss out of OCI and recognize it in earnings. Then, so, Brett, before you yeah. get to normal, then I think, again, the key there, because I, I know even when I review this, I always get confused. You have things that are probable. So your hedge is still good. Things that are not probable, which is almost like a pause. And then when it's probable of not occurring is when you basically completely discontinue your hedge counting. Exactly right. Exactly right. All right. So now normal. This one's also a little can get a little tricky. Yeah. So again, it's, it's a probable standard. So um, if if you if you determine that physical delivery is no longer probable, uh, you must discontinue your election for normal purchase, normal sale. Um, and then what you do at that point gets actually a little complicated. I'd look. I'd point uh, readers to our listeners to our derivatives guide. Uh, for more guidance on what to do if if you if you think you're in that situation. Yeah, I think that's good advice because uh, that actually comes down to the form of net settlement will depend will drive when you actually you know, sort of stop your accounting. In some cases, it's when you actually miss the delivery, and then in other cases, it's when you know it's probable you're going to miss. So your 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 advice is is good there. And like I said, that's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. So definitely a lot for companies to think about. And this one case, I don't even need to ask you guys because I know I can refer them to our in-depth that kind of summarizes these and other issues related to the conflict. But I also know that 
there's a little more to this than from a disclosure perspective than just saying, oh, go follow the disclosures for, you know, whatever standard we're talking about here. So Angela, maybe starting with you, what are some of the things you think about from a disclosure perspective? Sure. So, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about disclosures, but I think it just bears repeating that whenever there are events that could materially impact the company's business or creates you know, risks and uncertainties that transparent and robust disclosure is really going to be critical. And that would include being impacted by the events in Ukraine or even just the broader economic environment, whether that's continued inflation or supply chain disruptions. Right? There's a lot of things creating those risks and uncertainties right now. And of course, the extent and location of that disclosure is really going to depend on the company's specific facts and circumstances. So there's not going to be any kind of one size fits all. I mean, you really need to think through what what the company's impacts are and then what level of disclosure is appropriate. I'd say in some recent Form 10Ks that have been filed, I mean, we've seen companies um, in, include more disclosure in risk factors in some cases in MDNA. Um, as a reminder, the principal purpose of MDNA is to provide material information re relevant to the company's financial condition, operations, and cash flows, which includes when events are reasonably likely to have an impact, a material impact on future operations, right? So you're looking forward and really trying to give the reader a sense of what is the impact and the significance to the company's business operations, um, whether they're located in Russia or Ukraine, those, you know, some operations located there or just impacted by things such as the, you know, like I said, supply chain disruptions or, or other issues. Um, a few other things to think about, I mean, some, Relevant disclosures may include impact to liquidity, um, loss of key customers, uh, loss of suppliers, um, cyber risk might be relevant in this situation. Um, you may have assets that are at risk of impairment. Um, you also would think about the impact of potential changes to pricing, prices or cost and, and how that may impact revenue and margins. So I have a large laundry list of items to think about there. But and certainly in Q1, if you have current period material impacts, then that may need to be included in your footnote disclosures, such as changing your um, assessments around collectability, you know, when you're talking about revenue or if you've uh, recorded impairments, right, that, that would all need to be reflected in your footnotes. Brett, she covered, I think, almost the entire 10K, but anything uh, that you would add to that list? I think the only thing I would, I would add is, um, is, is the, the favorite non-GAAP measure uh, comment. And um, I think you know, we've, we've got a lot of guidance out there. The SEC staff has given uh, lots of their views around non-GAAP measures. And so companies who are thinking about um, creating new non-GAAP measures this quarter related to um, to uh, these events happening this quarter, I, I would encourage them to pull out that guidance and, and making sure they're they're following it. Um, you know, for example, if you're making adjustments uh, within a non-GAAP measure, is it is it clearly attributable to the conflict 
are the amounts you're presenting uh, really incremental to normal operations? Um, is the adjustment based on actual amounts uh, rather than hypothetical costs or, or maybe lost opportunities? We've seen the the staff object to non-GAAP measures that include those sorts of uh, hypothetical amounts. And then it's always important to to def- clearly define the adjustments you're making. I think with with um, non-GAAP disclosures in general, we always think we always tell people the the most important thing is to make sure it's not misleading. Um, and to make sure that it's clearly disclosed um, and and what the methodology was used and, and what you're trying to present. All right. And then to be very clear, I made a comment that Angela covered the whole 10K. Uh, these absolutely are also considerations for the 10Q. So don't get the idea that we are in any way suggesting that this is something you should save for your annual period. I think if anything, you might need more updates in your quarterly period than maybe some some other quarters, kind of going back to where we were at the beginning. So uh, Angela and Brett, as always, really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks so much for all your insight. That's our show for today. We're back next week with all new episodes. Join me on Tuesday when we kick off the next month-long toolkit series looking at cryptocurrency. And on Thursday, we're taking another even closer look at the SEC's recently released climate proposal. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.